Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Q&A, where we look at questions through the light of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible has to say so that we can know what we believe. We determine what we believe based upon the Scriptures. The Bible, of course, says to rightly interpret the Word of God, that Scripture is not a matter of one's own interpretation, so we have to figure out what it was meant by God when He wrote it. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. So we're gonna take the next hour and we're gonna look at questions in the light of what the Bible has to say. We have a question loaded up here as one to take first. And um, this one is, how should we live in light of the return of Jesus? So. The Bible tells us Jesus could come back at any moment, that we're supposed to live our lives today. We are, we are looking up. Uh, we don't know when Jesus is gonna return, so we're supposed to stay ready. Unfortunately, in church history, there have been those that have said, uh, that have set dates, and then those who have believed it, and then they did certain things, like sell their possessions, because they believed that that date was, was set and was gonna happen for sure, and it didn't happen. And so how should we live? What does the Bible tell us about the way we should live? So Jesus told a parable in Matthew about the master going away and the servants not knowing when he was gonna come. And then he gave them this passage. He said in Matthew 24, 46 and 47, blessed is the servant who his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. So the person who is blessed is the one who is doing the work that God has called him to do when he's supposed to do it. Uh, we've been told, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all the things that I have commanded you. The Bible says, above all, have a fervent love for one another. All of these things are things we're supposed to occupy with. If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. So we want to keep things right between us and God. We want to redeem the time because it's short. Uh, there, uh, we want to be serious about our walk and about our faith. We certainly don't want to be those that in the end, Jesus returns and we are not ready for his return. So we occupy. We don't waste time because of it. There are people that accuse someone that believes that Jesus could come back at any moment and we won't go into the tribulation period as being those people that just take it easy because they don't got to worry about it. But the Bible says that the, this hope, the hope of the rapture, purifies us even as we are pure. We keep our eyes to the sky and we look for Jesus and that's how we are to live in the light of the return of Christ. I want to welcome all of you guys that are joining us today. Uh, if you have a question, you can write the word question down and then write out your question. Uh, we'll answer questions for an hour or until we run out of them. You can ask questions about anything that you want to, uh, about prophecy, uh, the Bible, Christian living, hard questions, things that non-believers have asked you or things that you would like to be prepared for if you're asked a question by someone. The Bible says be ready in season and out of season, season <laughs> to give an answer to those who would ask you. So we're gonna look here and see what questions we have already. I appreciate you guys being here. It's good uh, to see you. Uh, we have a question from Albert. I'm gonna bring that in. Uh, Albert says, hello, pastor. In Numbers 3, uh, um, 
Yeah, uh, hi, Pastor. I'm Numbers. There, uh, in Numbers three, there seems to be different ages to when Levite men could serve as priests, such as four three and eight twenty four. Was the age thirty, and is this why Jesus's ministry began at that age? So I'm not really. Let me take a, um, time to look up these two passages uh, because I'm not really that familiar with those two passages so i just don't want to so we're going to look at both of these are in the book of uh, leviticus right is that what it says here um when the levite men could such as i'm going to hope this is leviticus um let's see all the way back up to the top look at leviticus we'll start with four three and see if that's it uh, it says, if the anointed priest signs guilty people. Okay, so that's, um, that's not it. Um, as far as I understand it, and as far as I can remember, the priest started at age 30. I'm not sure about these references because it doesn't say, I, um, I guess numbers, it's numbers. Let me take a look at numbers. Here we go. Sorry. It does say, uh, numbers four, uh, verse three. Uh, and let me go ahead and bring you in on this. So Numbers 4, verse 3, it says, For 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who entered the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. Let me take a look at your other one here. So that one definitely says from 30 years old and above, right? From 30 years uh, to 50. Now let's look at 8, 24. Yeah. Numbers, it makes me go all the way back to the beginning here. 8, 24. So Numbers 8, 24 says, let me go ahead and, and uh, put this up on the screen for you as well. So Numbers 8, 24 says, this is what uh, pertains to the Levites from 25 years old and above when may enter to perform service to the work of the tabernacle of meeting. All right, so this has to do with Levites. Did the other one have to do with priesthood? Huh, I'm gonna go back and forth here. Sorry guys. I just wanna uh, see if I can get this clear. So numbers three, um, it says uh, from 30 years old and above, uh, the children of Korah. Let me go ahead and bring you in on this one as well. Do we change that? Yeah, okay. So um, uh, take a census of the sons of Korah from among the children of Levi by their families and their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who entered the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, so there it is. Um, so one of them is the Levites entering into the service of the Lord. Remember, there are a lot of Levites and not all the Levites did the work for the tabernacle. So here we have the tabernacle and that would be priests. That would be those who build the tabernacle. Remember, this is gonna travel around in the wilderness. So I'm gonna take it that these guys are 25 years old and above and, uh, or excuse me, are 30 years old and that Levites can just begin to go out and do the work uh, as a Levite at 25 years old. This would be taking care of people's spiritual needs. Remember, there were Levite cities uh, that were in certain areas so they could do the spiritual work. Uh, it's a great story about how the Levites got chosen uh, to be the, the priestly family. Of course, Moses and Aaron are Levites. But you remember that Levi and Simeon, Levi and Simeon, Simeon attacked the city of Shechem because their sister, what he saw, that Jacob uh, cursed them and said they will have not have any part in the land. 
That happened by Simeon getting assimilated by the tribe of Judah and by the Levites going throughout all of the 12 tribes and they were drawn closer to God. It's a great revelation of how God can use a curse to turn it around and be for the good. So I think that that explains the difference between those two. All right, one of them is has to do with the tabernacle and the other one does not. I think I'm right on that. You can prove me wrong if you want to. All right, so let's go ahead and take another question. I appreciate you guys. Good to see you. We have a question from Jari here, um, which says, and um, Jari had this question, and I think we talked about it a little bit last week, um, and I did prepare this question for one of the future Q&As, so I'll go ahead and take it out and we'll talk about it now. Um, so what if a child, if a six-year-old uh, takes the mark of the beast? And I'm gonna say that I believe there's an age, age of accountability, I believe that God gives light to men everywhere. There's the external revelation of creation. Externally, he puts in men the, the evidence that he exists. Okay, that's Romans 1 and 2. The Bible also teaches us that we are judged by the light that we have. And God's not going to judge those who don't know their right hand from their left. And so that has caused some really good Bible teachers to say children are going to be taken up in the rapture of the church. That all the children are going to be taken. And if that's the case, then no six-year-old is going to take the mark of the beast. Um, and I, I, and I, I feel that way. There's another passage in Revelation 7 that talks about your children being holy when they're with you. And so some argue that case, saying that those children are going to be left behind and would be able to take the mark of the beast. But remember, once you take the mark of the beast, that's it. it you have to pledge allegiance to him. And um, if by chance there was a six-year-old who did that, I think that God would take into account on judgment and, and maybe wouldn't let that happen. And maybe that's because all of the children are taken away. And um, which could indeed be a judgment on this world because of the way that people treat the unborn. All right. So that, I believe, is the answer to that question. Uh, I just don't think it's going to, to happen. All right. And if it did happen, God would be able to judge that child accordingly. God knows everything and judges everybody by everything that God knows about those individuals. All right, thanks, Jari. I really appreciate that. Again, good to see you guys. Let's see what other questions we've got here. Uh, good to see you, Daniel. We have a question from Renee. Renee says, um, what do you think about apostolistic teaching and Bible study? This question is from my sister, Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right, so I'm not quite sure exactly what you mean by that. Apostolistic teaching and Bible study. Do you mean that, you, that there are people who are apostles today who are teaching? And sometimes in certain churches, you know, I'm Apostle Robert Furrow. They have the title Apostle for Pastor. We do know that there were the 12 Apostles because we have the 12 apostles with their names written on the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem. So there's 12 of them. Well, we know that the church was built upon their foundation. As far as an ongoing office of apostle, I don't see anything in the Bible that talks about that. So people could use it in a different term, right? They could say, well, we have apostles in our church, but it doesn't mean they are one of the 12 apostles. And if they believe that they have the authority that the apostles had to be able to write scripture, I would say that that it does not come with what the Bible says. I would say that they are, they are 
um, not rightly dividing the Word of God. I would like to know what passages they use to try to say that the apostles have authority today to be able to teach. Um, I, I think we've had in the Bible, you've got deacons, you've got elders, you've got pastors. Some versions talk about bishops. Um, these are all, uh, the Bible talks about prophets. Uh, and then apostles was the 12 apostles who were given the word of God uh, that would be handed down to us and were able to do miracles as well even as Jesus did. So hopefully that answers your question. If you'd like to clarify that a little bit, Renee, I'd love to revisit this question again if, uh, if that comes up. All right. So thank you very much. So we have another question here. Let me go ahead and, and uh, bring this in. All right. So this comes to us from Dale Harrison from YouTube. Dale says, how do I help a good friend who is against Christianity? He's one of those who took theology in college. I've gotten in arguments and stopped, but I'd like to know what to do. Thanks. Well, I really appreciate that, Dale. Um, the first thing that you've got to do is lay a foundation of prayer for this individual so that if um, so that God can move, move on his heart and he would respond openly and honestly. Sometimes when people are exposed, they become inoculated to something and they just are not open and willing to be able to talk about it. And that is really unfortunate. So you want to look for doors for the Holy Spirit to be able to open up for you to be able to share. Pray for them, um, your friend, be a friend to them. Um, you may, when you get to a question, if they, if they ask you a question, if they start it and they ask you a question, you may ask them, listen, if I really can answer this, will you honestly respond to it and not just kind of shove it off and look for another question? Because if you're just casting your pearls before swine, Jesus said, well, don't do that. But if he's honest and searching, then go ahead and do that. A lot of times they think because they took theology, uh, in class that they, in, in a theology class, that they know the Bible. Let me see the, the way you read this here. Um, he is one of those who took theology in college. So I don't know whether you mean a theology degree or a theology class, but unfortunately, it doesn't get down. A lot of times what you get in a class doesn't work in the real world. That's true for even seminary. Uh, a pastor has got to come out and learn how to take these things that he learned in theology and fit them into the real world. Um, I used to have upholstery shops. I had several of them, three or four upholstery shops. And I would hire people who went through an upholstery school that was in Albuquerque. And I had to start them at step one, like I did everybody else, taking seats out of a car, breaking down the seats. Once they got familiar with that, I would show them how to make patterns of seats. And then I would show them how to sew and start to trusting them with sewing. Just because they went through the upholstery school didn't mean that they knew it. That may very well be the truth with your friend, but I'll guarantee you everyone that came in that had gone through that upholstery school thought they were ready to be a trimmer and that they were going to just take off and do it. And I think that's probably the same um, with people who go through seminary or go through, take some the theology classes. Uh, I would um, maybe ask him some heartfelt questions. Why are you against Christianity? Um, maybe try to figure out what, what's really going on in his life. And we're not going to be able to win everyone. Sometimes it's somebody else. And sometimes being a friend of somebody makes it difficult for you to be able to do that. All right. So pray for them. Seek God for them. Look for opportunities. Maybe have some heartfelt questions. 
doesn't mean it's an ongoing forever conversation. It means sometimes you sow seeds, you water, and then you kind of let it go and you let God come in. Uh, God is the one who adds to the kingdom of God anyway. All right. Thanks, Dale. I appreciate that. Hope that was somewhat helpful. Uh, and we have another question from Sarah Marie. Sarah Marie, good to see you. She says, how does God expect us to forgive when all we can think about is the hurt someone caused? How do you trust again? Um, thank you, Sarah Marie. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, there, there are very real hurts, right? We, we, we get really truly hurt by someone that does something wrong to us. Um, I think a lot of times when people talk about forgiveness, they could fall into the category of talking about those who are offended too easy. The Bible says, don't be offended too easily. And we can be offended too easily. That's one thing. But when someone really hurts us, they really violate a confidence. They really do something to us that has really hurt us. And we are harboring unforgiveness and bitterness towards them. What do we do? Well, we, we, it's, it's not an option. We can't go, well, I'm not going to forgive them, but I'm going to forgive them because Jesus said, well, we pray it in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And so we have to forgive them. It's an absolute necessity that you would do that. If you don't, then bitterness is going to grow up in your life. You're going to be the one that's hurt. And so you have to let it go. You've got to forgive them. That doesn't mean you have to be restored, right? So let's just go to the worst case scenario. Let's just say that there was a, there was a, a grandfather, a, a father who had molested his daughter. And you say to the daughter, you've got to forgive your father. And, and you might do that in counseling because she may be dealing with bitterness that's taking every aspect of her life. It's something she can't get rid of. It's something she thinks about all the time. She wants to get back at her dad. She wants malice to happen to him because of her unforgiveness. So she has to let it go. Well, how do you let something horrible like that go? Well, like the man that went out and grabbed the man that owed him 50 denarius by the neck and said, pay me every last penny, then threw him in prison. How, do you, how would he have forgiven him? By letting him go and not throwing him in prison. Before God, not before a dad who's molested you, but before God, you say, Lord, I forgive them. They don't owe me anything anymore. I let it go. I'm not putting them in prison. I don't say they owe me anything. I don't want any malice towards them. I don't want any heartache towards them. I pray for them. I pray that they would be forgiven. I pray they'd have eternity. You truly let go of them. Now, does that mean that you ever have to trust them again? Absolutely not. In fact, it might be argued that you forgive someone like that. You wouldn't bring them over to your house for Thanksgiving because of what they did. You, you can't trust them anymore. You don't have to be restored. You don't have to put your trust in someone who's hurt you. You absolutely do have to forgive. And like I said, that's letting it go. That's telling God you don't want any malice. I suggest not calling the person and telling them unless they've been looking for forgiveness. If they've been asking for forgiveness from you, then I think it's okay to go to them and say, I, I forgive you. And of course you want to be led by the spirit because things can happen differently. But I think as a form of wisdom, it's not wise just to call someone out of the blue that's hurt you and say, hey, I just want you to know I forgive you because they're probably going to say something like, I don't care if you forgive and then you're all mad and upset again. Go to God, let it go before God 
You have to forgive everyone. Otherwise, this root of bitterness is going to grow up inside of you. But that doesn't mean you have to restore. That doesn't mean that there has to be trust in that person again. You trust in God, right? You don't trust in, in, uh, uh, in that person again. Very good question, Sarah Marie. Something a lot of people deal with. Um, I think I've shared this in a sermon before that I did a teaching on forgiveness and just all the things the Bible says about it, how to do it. And um, afterwards, a lady came up to me and says, I cannot be, I cannot remarry my ex. And I was like, which sermon were you listening to? Because I didn't say you had to. In, in fact, I don't know that you should. Sometimes God does restore and bring marriages back together. But sometimes there's been such violations that God doesn't do that at all. All right. Thank you very much, Sarah Marie. Good to see you. We will see you uh, later on. I appreciate that question. Uh, we have a question here from Dan who comes to us from Facebook. So let's see how this question does. Bam. We'll bring that down some here. Oops. We'll bring that down some here. Dan, good to see you again. All right. Um, question. I just saw a movie called an interview with God. This is a Christian movie on Pure Flix. Pastor, what do you think about these movies that show us God, God's Word? It has a good message in my opinion. However, should we be wary of these movies and their um, interpretations of what, really, of what God really wants for us in these movies? His messages um, have ulterior motives. I have seen reviews on these movies and others, and people disagree and scoff at the movies such as these. I am confused. Are Christian movies a good outlet, or are they the work of the devil? What are your thoughts? All right, Dan, I'm going to go ahead and erase your question here because it's so big. <laughs> All right. Um, here's my thoughts on Christian movies. They're they're not always they're not always the best movie. Okay. Um, I have a friend of mine that says of Christian movies they're a little bit of cheese and a little bit of corn. They're a little cheesy and they're a little corny. However, they can be good. The uh, Fireproof is an excellent movie that helps. That's with Kirk Cameron. That really has a great message on marriage, which can really be powerful. Is it a little cheesy and corny? Probably, but it's got a great message. And I don't think that you can lump all Christian movies together and then say they're all bad. And I don't think that anyone is setting out when they're doing a Christian movie to, uh, to, to be evil on it. And I don't know that I've ever seen what I would call as a demonic Christian movie. So no, I don't think that they're demonic at all. Uh, I think uh, sometimes I don't get much out of them. I'll watch them and the acting is so bad, the directing is so bad, the storyline is so bad that I, I just can't watch it. I just... I just can't do it. Um, sometimes there's a great message and you can get by all of that. Uh, sometimes it's good to sit down with the kids or the grandkids and watch one of these movies uh, that has a really good message to it. So I would not lump them all in the same category. Um, I understand why some people can be critical of them. And like anything else, like, like you know, Christian movies about Jesus, series about Jesus like The Chosen, which is not corny or cheesy, by the way. I think it's very, very well done, uh, The Chosen particularly. But they take some freedoms and they have to interpret. And sometimes the beliefs of the individual make their way into the movie. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because I believe that there has to be some artistic license. 
If I were going to do a movie about Jesus, I, I don't have enough time to do everything. So you've got to try to get main points and maybe put them together. So you might mess with the time frame a little bit. And I think even the Gospels do that. So I'm not, I don't think that that is demonic at all. So it depends on what kind of Christian movies you're talking about, what kind of Christian shows you're talking about. Uh, you can't lump them all together. Uh, I think most of them have a good message. I don't know of any that have a demonic message. Although who knows, right? I could just be deceived and not know. Dan, really appreciate your question. Uh, I'll see you later on. It's uh, good for you to join us and uh, to ask your questions here. All right, so uh, we have a question from, all right, this is a question that comes from Natalie. Natalie has questions about Genesis 32, 28. What does it mean, wrestling with God? All right, so in Genesis 32, Jacob is returning to the promised land. He's lived his whole life apart from it. He sends his wives, he sends his children, he sends his livestock all over before him, over a river before him. His brother Esau is going to meet him the next morning. Last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. And then a man comes and wrestles with him all night long. And I can't remember if it's an angel of the Lord that wrestles with him or if it's a man. Let me just take a minute to look this passage up here just to make sure. Um, Genesis 32, 28, at least, what it's, at least what it says here. It might explain it somewhere else as well. So 3228. Um, so does it say there wrestling with God? Um, yeah, I'm going to just say this is an angel of the Lord without looking it up, without being able to take time right now to look it up. He wrestles with God and um, in the form of a man. This may have been a Christophany, the angel of the Lord. I'd have to look it up to refresh myself on it. Um, but Jacob, that was a sign of what he did his whole life. God had, before Jacob was born, Rebecca was having problems and the Lord told her, the younger is going to rule over the greater. You have two nations in your womb. How'd you like that? Pregnant women, you have two nations in your womb and the younger is going to rule over the older. God had it all worked out. But Jacob just couldn't trust God. He just was always taking, always taking, always taking, grabbing. It was like a dog I used to have that, that I'm giving it a treat. It's, it's a doggy treat. I'm not going to eat it and it nips at my hand to get it away. He wants to get it before I give it to him. I was gonna give it to him. He was just grabbing from me what I was already going to give him. And so much of Jacob's life is like that. The problem when you're a manipulator like that, you try to manipulate God, you may manipulate your way into something that's not really for you and you could have all kinds of trouble and that's the life of Jacob. So Jacob holds on to this angel, the angel of the Lord, God, until morning and he says, let me go. The, the angel of the Lord, God, could have easily gotten away from him. And Jacob says, no, I won't let you go until you bless me. This is Jacob's stubbornness, right? He's as stubborn as, as me, really. And God touches his hip and puts it out of joint. He blesses him by hurting him. And he leaned on a staff the rest of his life. He walked with a limp, needed a staff the rest of his life. So there's so much there. It's, it's sermon material, okay? Because there's just a lot there. But the, the answer is don't wrestle with God. Receive what God wants for you. Don't be like Jacob. Whenever I study the life of Jacob, I get fearful that I'm Jacob. I, I always do. I think I don't want to be like Jacob. I want to be able to just trust God to give me the things that God is going to give me. All right, Natalie, I appreciate it. Great question. Uh, we have a question here from Jeff. All right, and Jeff has a question about the vaccines. Maybe even my comments about vaccines. Question. 
Your comments about the vaccine not being the mark of the beast, I believe, is correct. Do you think that the mark of the beast was written by John referring to the Roman emperor and that it has spread into Christianity as something that will occur, occur in the future? So 666, there are every, every Greek number, every Greek letter had a number associated with it. And so people have taken Nero's name and they've got to take a certain name. They can't take all of his names, but they've got to take a variety of them, added them together and came up with 666, saying that th th this proves that Nero was the one that's talked about, especially preterists who believe that uh, Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD, uh, especially will we'll do this. There's a couple problems with that. Number one, some of the older manuscripts Remember, we've got th thousands of manuscripts. Some of the older manuscripts have 616 instead of 666. So I guess you got to go use a different variation of Nero's name to be able to come up with 616 as well. I think that six is the number of man. The beast is the ultimate man. And so he is 666. That's his number. I don't think it talks specifically about Nero Although, oftentimes in the Bible, you have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And I'm not just making it up, I promise you. You go back and you look at fulfillments in Scripture. Go to the New Testament where it says and that Jesus fulfilled this passage. And you can go back and look and there was a near fulfillment than a far fulfillment in Jesus. So could it be that there was a near fulfillment in a type of the Antichrist in Nero who started the persecution of the church? Uh, and, and the Antichrist is going to end the persecution of saints, right? He's not around when the church is around, but of saints, maybe so. Maybe Nero was a type of the Antichrist. And so the number applies to both. Um, but I'm not all of that persuaded. I think numbers can be manipulated a lot. I remember I was told, I, I remember that I was told that Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist because Ronald Six, Wilson, six, Reagan, six, 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 six. He's the, he's the Antichrist. And um, so you can manipulate. And, and I, I don't put much stock in those. Um, I think it's the number of a man. And he's the ultimate man and will be destroyed by God. All right. So I think that's where it all, all comes down to. Thank you, Jeff, for your question. Um, I really, I really appreciate that. Um, and of course, when it comes to things like this, mysterious things like that, the mystery of 666, I could be wrong. All right, I'll just let you know that. Um, Corey says, question in Revelation 18, are those buying and selling already taken the mark of the beast? And if so, could the collapse of buying be connected to, the, to blockchain technology? Uh, and I wish I had a little bit more information. Let me just go, to pop into Revelation 18 here and just take a, a quick look at this uh, chapter. Uh, this is near the, the fall of Babylon the Great, right? And uh, mystery Babylon's fall, uh, the final fall of Babylon. Yeah, so I, I do believe that. And I've done a video on uh, Bitcoin and the last days. I think it was the, the name of that video. Maybe Daniel or someone can find it and put it, the link up here in the um, in, in the uh, notes so that you guys can click on that and see it. Um, I think it's gotten like, I don't know, 25,000 views. So people are really interested in this. 
um, blockchain chain technology r really can be used for a lot of different things. So it's a form of verification, right? You're verifying through a blockchain and it's a ledger that has to be updated every so often, depending on the parameters that you put on it. So I think Bitcoin is every 10 minutes. So every 10 minutes, there's a ledger update. So every ledger in the world has to be updated within 10 minutes, if I'm right about that number. And that's why it's so hard to fake Bitcoin. And I'm not saying that Bitcoin's gonna be huge, or I'm not saying go out and buy it, okay? This is not financial advice, okay? This is biblical advice. Um, but it's pro, but you can make parameters in programmable money. China has already done this by making a digital yuan. The United States is going to do it. There, it's in the works right now. Digital money. They can put the digital money in your account. It's programmable. It, you have to spend it by a, a certain date. They want to put money into the economy, make sure that it helps the economy. They give you money, but they give you a date you got to spend it by. So you got to go out and spend it, and that's really going to help the economy. One of the things that they don't like now is they can give money to people, but they can be worried about it and they can hoard it. And so it doesn't make its way into the economy. And that's happened some with all of this printing that's taking place now. So yeah, I do believe that blockchain technology could be um, connected to the mark of the beast. I'm not saying it's the mark of the beast, but it could be that you can't buy or sell until you get the mark and that's all computerized. And once you get the mark, boom, your accounts open up and you're able to buy. If you don't get the mark, your account's not opened up and, you, and you're not able to buy. So Corey, I think that's some great insight. Um, I, I think it's as good as any other technology. I do know when credit cards came out, people thought that credit cards were the mark of the beast. I know when barcodes came out, people thought barcodes were the mark of the beast. Um, and none of them, I, parts of those technologies maybe, but you have to pledge allegiance. Otherwise, you're not, uh, you're not taking the mark of the beast. All right, thank you, uh, Corey. Uh, I appreciate your question. Uh, so again, good to see you guys. We have a question here from Shelly. Shelly, good to see you. She says, Matthew 13, 49. It says that the end of the, um, says in the end of age, angels are sent out to separate evil people from righteous people. Is this before Jesus returns? Is this at the beginning of the tribulation period? All right, well, let's go ahead and see if I can take a look here at your reference, if I can find my cursor. There it is. There it is. All right, so um, we're gonna look this up. Matthew 13, 49. All right, and Let's see, I'm gonna go ahead and put this on the screen so you can see it. So here it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet was a cast out to gather some of the vineyard, uh, which, we, uh, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. All right, so thank you uh, for your question. Let me go ahead and get back here. Thanks for your question, Shelly. Um, I think that this is a big picture. I don't think that it's trying to pick out a small time. It's talking about the end of the world and it's talking about it from 30,000 feet as it were. So Jesus is saying at the end of the age, 
the angels are going to go out and gather and separate the wicked from the righteous. Jesus talks about the goat being separated from the sheep. And how the angels do this, um, when they do it exactly, maybe it's in judgment. It sounds to me like it could be the white judgment seat where he separates the sheep from the goats. And the goats get judged. And the books are opened. And it's a scary thought. Um, and, and so I think that this is a big picture of what happens. And I think that the wicked are going to be separated from the, um, from the just. But the real question is, how do we become just, right? We become just by receiving Jesus as our Savior. Otherwise, we will be in with the wicked as well. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I hope um, that answered this. Is this before Jesus returns? No, I, no, it's not. It's afterwards. It's definitely afterwards. It's um, after the tribulation period. It's, it's after everything. All right. So um, thank you. I almost finished our broadcast instead of uh, getting rid of Shelly's question. All right. So uh, let's see. Uh, looking down here. Uh, we have a question from Shelly that has a question about speaking in tongues. And uh, excuse me, from Kelly, not Shelly. Kelly, good to see you, Kelly. Kelly says, need help with understanding about speaking in tongues. I just don't know all that much about it and many different um, opinions from various pastors. Yeah, it's like anything else, right? There are a lot of different opinions. Um, so we want to go to the Bible and we want to know what the Bible has to say. And so if you want to read about tongues, then you would read about gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Then you would read about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 which all the gifts are to be operated in love. And then you would read 1 Corinthians 14. It's going to tell you about tongues. It's going to tell you that when you speak in tongues, your spirit speaks mysteries to God. So people sometimes will have a, a tongues and then an interpretation. And the interpretation is, thus says the Lord, I'm going to use you in a great way. I'm going to do, do great things with this church. That's not the interpretation. That was a prophecy. If it really was genuine, it was a prophecy. An interpretation is going to be praise and worship. In Acts chapter 2, it says, when they heard them speaking in tongues, they heard them magnifying God. In Acts chapter 10, it says the same thing. Paul says um, that you speak in tongues, you do well, you magnify God, you're worshiping him. Your spirit speaks mysteries to God. So the interpretation of a tongues should be, I praise you, I worship you, I lift you up, you are worthy, O Lord, I surrender my life totally. It should be what I'm saying in my spirit to God. Therefore, tongues are this, it's this vessel that God gives to someone to be able to bypass the understanding and let your soul and spirit pour out to God and you are edified by tongues. But it's self-edifying. And that's why Paul says, if you're going to ask for a gift, ask for prophecy, something that can edify more than just yourself. Asking for tongues is okay. But you don't want to just live your life for yourself. You want to live your life for other people. He also talks about restrictions on tongues. He says that no more than two or three are to speak in tongues. And not everybody's supposed to speak at once. Let it be at the most two or three. And if there's no interpreter, then let them keep silent. So these are massively misused. This chapter teaches us about how to use tongues. It's massively misused by churches as if there has to be tongues every single service or you're quenching the Holy Spirit. The Bible just not, does not support such a thing. All right, so hopefully there's a little crash course on tongues. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 uh, and um, 
we've got a study, we've got a Bible study on it in um, on CalvaryTucson.com or Calvary Tucson's app. Just go to the uh, to teachings, go to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 14. And in fact, if you want to listen to 12, 13, and 14, you can do that. It's going to walk you all the way through the gifts of the Spirit. All right, Kelly, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for your question. It's a good thing to want what God can give you. All right, so I'm going to bring in another question here from Natalie. Natalie says, if someone got married, not by the government, but by an uncle, saying we come before God to marry these two, are they really married? Does God really see them as married? Okay, so here's the question. Are they legally married? And if they're legally married, then God I sees their marriage. That's what I believe. Um, and today, in America, you could be married by a dog. You could be married by a goldfish. Not only could you be, people are. And they are legitimate and they are binding because that's how weird and perverted our, our society has gotten. And so, you know, the uncle could have gotten a certificate online that allowed him to be able to be ordained and marry people, or he could have just signed it. He just married them and signed it, and he's, they're, they're married, which is crazy that that's the way it is today, but that's the way it is today. So I would say, yes, they are married, okay? Now, two people go out in front of a tree and take their vows in front of a tree with no witnesses and then say we're married so that they can have sex, and I've heard that before, um, then, then they're not married, okay? It's not legal. Nothing would be legally binding. If you went into a court of law and tried to make that marriage stand so you could split property or whatever, it wouldn't work. But the one from the uncle with witnesses, with marriage license, yes, that would work, all right? So hopefully that answers your questions. Again, you can ask more if you would like me to follow up on, um, on more. All right, so um, let's see. We have a question from All Pink. All Pink says, good to see you, by the way. Um, I go to an apostolic Pentecostal church, and from what I've noticed, that we stand on Acts 2.38. All right, let me go to Acts 2.38. Uh, because I can't remember off my head what Acts 2.38 is, but we can find it. All right, so 2.38. All right, so Acts 2.38, let me go ahead and bring that in. Uh, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all those who are so far off, as many as call upon the name of the Lord. Um, thanks, All Pink. Uh, I would also stand on that passage. I believe that you, you receive the Holy Spirit on the moment you're born again. I also believe that the Holy Spirit could come upon you and gift you. It says nothing there about speaking in tongues. And that speaking in tongues is somehow the gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 12, um, do all have gift of miracles? Do all prophesy? The, the obvious answer to that is no and no. Do all speak in tongues? The obvious answer is no. Not all speak in tongues. So, yeah, we, I, I think that Every single Christian 
genuine, you know, believing in the Bible, evangelical, is going to stand on those verses. They're going to say, yes, I, we live by that. Receiving the Holy Spirit and then having the Holy Spirit come upon you to empower you. Now, it might be those that just believe you receive the Holy Spirit at salvation and that there is not another experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon you to empower you. But I believe that that is what the, that verse is talking about. So I would agree with your apostolic Pentecostal church and stand on those verses as well. All right. They don't say it doesn't say anything about having to have any particular gift. I do believe that if the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that you will be um, it will you will it, will it will be revealed through a manifestation of some gift that is given to you. All right. So thank you. I'll think I appreciate that. All right. Um, let's see. We have um, another message or maybe a continuation uh, from Natalie. Question if someone gets married to a child molester but didn't know until he sexually abused her 11-year-old daughter, does God still want her to be with that husband since, the, since marriage is so important with God? Um, okay, first of all, how heartbreaking, Natalie. And I feel, I don't know who it was, right? I feel horrible for them that they trusted in someone who did that. Not only should they not, not only is it okay for them not to be in that marriage, but they should leave it now. Get out of there ASAP. Jesus said, if a man divorces and marries another woman, he commits adultery except for sexual immorality. There's obviously been sexual immorality here. There's no question. And in my opinion, in order for that mother, I'm not even gonna say my opinion. I'm just gonna say it because it's the truth. In order for that mother to protect her child, she has to get out of there. Put a restraining order on that man file against him, do everything that you can do to make sure that it's not going to happen again to someone else. So yeah, marriage is important. That's a violation of marriage and he violated it probably before he did that to her, uh, to her daughter, but yes, they need to be separated. And if someone is telling an individual to stay in a situation like that, then how absolutely silly, right? I want a lot of adjectives I could use. It's ridiculous, it's stupid, it's silly, and more to say that somebody has to stay in a relationship where something like that has happened. I've heard pastors do it, and shame on you. From, a, from one pastor to another, I'm gonna go to the shame thing. Shame on you for, for, for saying things like that to people. When something like this takes place, that woman needs to get out of there. She needs to, to, to file um, a restraining order against him, and she needs to go and file a police report on what has happened. All right, so Natalie, I'm, I'm sorry for whoever this is that this has happened to them and it really and truly is heartbreaking. But yes, marriage is important to God. But you know what, you know what Jesus said about those who hurt children? He said, it would be better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea. He didn't say that's what's going to happen to you. He said it's, it would be better for you before you molest that child to tie a millstone around your neck and drown yourself. It'd be literally better for you to kill yourself than, now who would say that today? But Jesus said it because he knows the future. He knows judgment and he knows what's going on.
So to whoever this person is, get away from that man now. Do not spend one more second with him. Do what you've got to do to, to break it off now, okay? So thank you, Natalie. I, I really do appreciate your question. It truly is a heartbreaking, heartbreaking one. All right. Um, so we'll, we're looking for another question here. Uh, well, uh, so we have another question from Jari. Uh, good to see all you guys, by the way. Quite a few comments on here. All right. Uh, good to have you guys all joining us. Um, Jari has a question. She says, um, question, when Cain and Abel were a hundred, were they still babies? Like Grog, Star was 50-year-old baby. If one dies at a hundred, he is like a child, Isaiah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it seems like they weren't completely mature. Um, I'm trying to remember what the youngest one was to have a child as you're going down through those ages that are 900 years old, right? Methuselah being the longest. Um, Noah built the boat, 500. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I assume that's that's there's a way in which that's true. But there are certain things, Jari, that I, I just can't answer that I don't know for sure. Um, I assume it's not like today that it was different back then. Um, but how you can really check that is go back and just read the um, genealogies in early on in the book of Exodus, um, Genesis. It starts with Adam and it tells you at what year they gave birth to each person. And um, I haven't done that in a long time and I'm not even sure I could find it quickly, but let me just take a look and see if I can, all right? Uh, I'm just going to see if I can find it. I think it's 4, Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel, the family of Cain, new son, how about 5, the family of Adam. All right, let's just you know, let's pull this up and let's look at it. Let's, let's see what we can figure out here together, all right? So um, this is the family of Adam. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. He created him. I made them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and his name was Seth. So Cain and Abel were born before Seth, and then Seth, he begat Seth, and the days of Adam were 800 years and his sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam, yeah, so all the days that Adam, let's see where it up here. So all the days that Adam lived was 930 years, and so he died. Seth lived 105 years and begat Enosh. All right, so that directly uh, connected to, like there are 100 years of a baby because Seth is 105 here when he has a child. So maybe older, but maybe, you know, it seems like 100 years is a long time to wait to have a kid. So maybe adolescence did last longer during those days. All right, good question. Uh, we have another 10 minutes. So uh, we'll take another question here from Gene. Uh, good to see you, Gene. Gene joins us from YouTube. Uh, if you're on YouTube, uh, I noticed that a lot of people that will ask questions aren't subscribed to our channel. I'd love to give you an invitation to subscribe. We're trying to reach as many people as we can with the gospel. When you hit subscribe and you ring the bell, it really helps us with YouTube to be able to push out um, the content that we make more. All right, we'll have a teaching a little bit later on tonight, 
But um, thank you for joining us from uh, from uh, YouTube. Question. Uh, Gene says, what does wait on the Lord mean? Isaiah 40, 31. Does it mean pray and see what happens or does it mean something entirely different? So Isaiah 40, 31, I believe says, um, those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary or they'll walk and not be weary. They will run and not faint. So waiting upon the Lord doesn't mean that you're sitting in a waiting room. Just like, okay, God's going to do this someday. Waiting upon God means you're occupying, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're living your life, you're praying and you're asking God for something and you're waiting for God to bring that about. That's what waiting on the Lord means and you'll renew your strength. The person who doesn't wait upon the Lord is the person that goes out and does it himself. He rolls up his sleeves, he says, I've waited for God enough, he rolls up his sleeves and he goes out and he does it. Instead of waiting on God, you're waiting for God to reveal something to you, you're waiting for God to show you. I think a great example of this often is in marriage. You know, you got somebody who's 24 years old, they want to get married, they want to get married bad. And they just go out and find the first person to marry. You know, the first person that kind of fits the qualifications, okay, Christian, um, instead of waiting on God. Being single can be hard. And so waiting on God wouldn't mean you're just gonna sit and wait. It means that you're gonna wait and you're gonna see. And you might date, you might have relationships with men that are Christian and godly. You may do that with couples at first, you know, there's, there's safe ways to do those kind of things. Um, but you're waiting on God to open doors and reveal and to give you a yes. So it doesn't mean you're just sitting in a waiting room waiting for nothing to happen. Okay. But it does mean that you're, you've called upon God and you're now waiting for him to bring it about. So many examples of, of men of God waiting in the Bible and God bringing them about things that are blessings. All right. Thank you, Gene, for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have another question here coming to us from YouTube again. And uh, Primi, uh, Primi, why do you have to include God when you forgive others? Why bother God with personal problems on forgiveness? All right, Primi, um, because the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. When you receive Jesus as your savior, when you invite him in, 1 John 1, 12, as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. Jesus takes up residence inside of you and your life is now consumed with him. Jesus said, if you don't hate your father, mother, brothers and sisters and wife and children, you can't be my disciple. And we go, whoa, what does that mean? It means your love for God is to be so great that the love for your children and wife is to be like hatred compared to your love for God. We know the Bible tells us that a husband is supposed to love his wife like Christ loved the church and died for her. So we know he's supposed to love her. But Jesus uses teachings that are a shock teaching. You know, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Better for you to go to, to heaven without a hand than to go down to hell with it. He's giving a shock form of teaching to get your attention and to get you to really make a decision. Uh, and so you're supposed to give everything to God. You're supposed to live wholeheartedly to him. Of course you would go to him with forgiveness. And if you've never given your life to Christ, then call out upon him today. You, you must be born again, Jesus said. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This means that, that you're born, I'm born, I was born of the flesh, proof, I'm here. But you can't see that I'm born of the spirit. 
But at 13 years old, I called out upon God. I received him into my life. I invited him in and God came in and transformed me. The evidence that I'd been born again was that I changed. I became a new person. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. And Christ becomes our all in all. He becomes everything to us. God can't be bothered by you. Premi, can't, can't be. You're not bothering God when you're saying, Lord, I forgive them. I let it go. God, I, I give it. We're to call out to him daily. And there's no way that God is bothered by us at all. All right, Premi, thank you very much for your question. I really do appreciate it. Let's see whether we got uh, any other questions that are here. Uh, we're coming near the end. We have just a few more. I got a question here from Renee. Uh, Renee says, um, I'm uh, rephrasing the question. Thank you. I was hoping that you would. Uh, what is an apostolic church? Do you know it? Uh, if their Bible study and teachings are good. Again, uh, from my sister Shara. Thank you, Pastor Robert. Um, so we just had a question from someone that said there was, a, there was an apostolic Pentecostal church. I, 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 I'm not familiar enough with apostolic church. I'm sorry, Renee. I, I, but I'm just not going to pretend like I have an answer here when I don't. I'm not familiar enough with it. Um, I would have to take some time to look it up. And um, I'll try to do that. And if you ask me again, um, I'll come back with it. Maybe I can come back with it with the beginning of our um, Q&A on Wednesday. Um, but I just don't want to act like I know when I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's the apostolic Pentecostal church or not. So sorry. I appreciate you rephrasing the question. If you want to try it again, I don't know whether we'll have time here uh, to uh, continue on or not. You can certainly re-ask it in another day, uh, maybe to give us a little bit more information. Um, yeah, we'll, and we don't have time to look it up right now. Maybe we would have earlier, but we don't right now. All right. So, ah, all right. Let's see. Well, let me go ahead and bring in another one for Premi here. All right, Premi says, if God knows everything, why do we still have to talk and tell him your problem? Because he wants to have a personal relationship with us. Just like your friend may know certain things about you, but you sit down with a friend and tell them the things that they might already know because you guys are having coffee together. And so you love God and you pour out to him. It's about having a relationship with God and interacting with him. It's like I said before, God is your all in all. He is everything. And we are to give him our all in all. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the son whom he sent. All right. So thank you very much, Primi, for that. I'm going to just kind of take a look here. We are um, almost out of time. We've got one minute left. Looks like we've got a question from Saved by Grace, so we will make this one our last question. You can continue to write out your questions as long as the feed is up. I'll get the log from this later on. I'll be able to look back at your questions that you write at the end of this and choose that for questions in the beginning of a future uh, TruthQuest Q&A. All right, so Saved by Grace says, if a person is lukewarm or backslidden at the rapture, will they be left behind? And I... I have now, I have to think of, so this, this is hilarious that I picked this as I got one minute, maybe less, 
to be able to cover this question. All right, let's just say a person's genuinely saved. He's been born again. He's a new person, he's a new creation, but he is being saved as it is through fire, which 1 Corinthians tells us that there can be someone who's being judged, all their motives are bad, and they're saved through fire. That person is still saved. Paul said to the Corinthians, I wish I could write to you as spiritual, but I can't because you are carnal. So it is possible to be a Christian and to be a carnal Christian. They didn't come behind in any of the spiritual gifts, by the way. So being spiritual doesn't mean that you see the spiritual gifts any better than not. All right. Um, so I'm going to say if they're lukewarm and God spit them out, they're going to stay. If they're lukewarm and God hasn't spit them out, they're going to go. If they are genuine believers. If a lukewarm Christian is not a genuine believer, they're not going to go. But I think every genuine believer will go no matter what their relationship at that particular moment is like in Christ. Every genuine believer will go. Are there those that believe that they are genuine and aren't, that will be left behind? Yes, I certainly believe that. But I believe that every single genuine believer is going to go in the rapture of the church. And um, the only ones that will be left behind are those that were not genuine in their faith. And so the, the real into that is make sure that your faith is genuine, that you have a real genuine commitment to Christ. It has been really good to be able to spend this hour with you guys. Your questions are well thought out. Um, I love the biblical references that are there, heart moving. And I can tell from the way that these are asked that the majority of them are sincere and just really want to serve and follow God. And I love that. I love that we are able to have this time of ministry where we can interact and we can talk about different events that are taking place and talk about how that fits into the scriptures. So God bless you guys. I love you. Uh, I hope that your week goes really well. We have a service online. It'll be on Facebook and YouTube. Everywhere this is at, it'll be in just a couple of hours. Uh, we are gonna be talking about, the, the, the title of the message is Don't Be Like Them. And we're going to talk about the dangers of hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite. Uh, you could be a hypocrite in a lot of different ways. You're a hypocrite if you judge someone, like let's say you judge someone for cussing, but you're lying with your mouth. They're doing one thing that's sinful with theirs, but you're lying with yours and you get judgmental towards them, you're a hypocrite. And so there's two ways you could take care of hypocrisy. You could, you could either get rid of your hypocrisy. Jesus said, take the plank out of your own eye and then you can see clearly to take a speck out of your brother's eye. So he's not saying you don't help someone who's in need. He's just saying, get rid of that plank first. The other way is to stop judging people for the same kind of sins you have. Know yourself really well. Sometimes we are self-deceived. So we're going to be talking about all that tonight as we talk about hypocrisy. It's one of the major problems in the church today. It's one of the reasons people stop going to church. I don't go to church anymore. There's too many hypocrites in the church. So we're going to be talking about that at 6 o'clock. We'd love to have you join us. All right. Teaching will start about 625. All right. God bless you guys. Um, I'm out. 